Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Wednesday, August 30th, 2023. All right, first thing I want to mention today is our fundraiser at Antiwar.com, and right now we have matching funds up to $30,000 in matching funds. So if you donate, your impact will be doubled. So you go to antiwar.com slash donate and you can see the different ways that you can support us. And this is how antiwar.com gets by. We are entirely reader funded. And I also have to mention, if you go over to our blog, we have a letter from John Mearsheimer uh, telling you to support antiwar.com and to give generously for antiwar.com. So go check that out. He's been a very important voice uh, with all this madness going on with Ukraine. He's been predicting, you know, what happened for a long time. Um, so again, antiwar.com slash donate. Listen to John Mearsheimer and donate generously. Okay, so the first story at the top of antiwar.com today, President Biden wants to stop future presidents from ending the war in Ukraine. So the Biden administration is working to reach a deal with Ukraine for long-term military support to keep backing the war with Russia that would be difficult for a future president to exit. And this was reported by the Wall Street Journal on Tuesday. So this effort is part of a commitment made by G7 nations at the recent NATO summit in Vilnius to negotiate their own bilateral security deals with Ukraine. Besides the G7 nations, 18 other countries have agreed to provide long-term military support for Kiev. Those are mostly European countries. So the idea of the long-term commitment is to show Russia that it cannot wait out the Biden administration. So this Wall Street Journal report reads, quote, Western officials are looking for ways to lock in pledges of support and limit future governments' ability to backtrack amid fears in European capitals that Donald Trump, if he recaptures the White House, would seek to scale back aid, end quote. So it's interesting, you know, because they're not just saying that it's the U.S. that wants to, uh, you know, prevent this from happening. It's also European countries. So Trump, you know, he's currently the front runner still by a lot, uh, you know, based on the polls for the Republican nomination. And he said that he would end the Ukraine war in 24 hours. You know, he says a lot of things. um, And it's worth pointing out, as I do in this article, that Trump did escalate the U.S. involvement in Ukraine by signing off on sending them Javelin anti-tank missiles. The first shipment was delivered in 2018, and that was a pretty big escalatory step that President Obama did not take. But right now, he's saying he would end the war. I saw in one interview, he basically said he would threaten Ukraine, that he would cut off all aid if, um, if they don't negotiate with Russia, and he would threaten Russia that he would give Ukraine, you know, support that they've never seen before. So kind of you know, uh, sounding like he might threaten to escalate to to end the war, and you never know how that could work out. But he's definitely saying uh, something much different from President Biden. And this Wall Street Journal report acknowledged that the Biden administration could not legally bind a future president from exiting a deal with Ukraine, but Republican hawks in Congress could make it difficult. 
So during his time as president, Trump withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal, but the majority of Republicans in Congress supported exiting the agreement. But this would be different, I think. I mean, it's really tough to say what, you know, the political wins are going to be like, say, if Trump does win and he comes in in 2025. And who knows what the situation in Ukraine is going to be. Unfortunately, it does seem like the war is going to go on and on. Um, So one U.S. official told the Wall Street Journal that a proposal being considered for Ukraine would be a memorandum of understanding an MOU, which would not require congressional approval. So they're thinking that instead of, you know, some kind of formal treaty. And President Biden has previously floated the idea of an Israel model for Ukraine. The U.S. provides Israel with $3.8 billion in military aid each year under a 10-year memorandum of understanding, but does not provide mutual defense guarantees. And this report said that French officials have suggested military aid commitments for Ukraine should be over a four-year period. So that's the sort of length that they're thinking of here, maybe not quite as long as the 10-year MOU with Israel. And the report also said, you know, it's going to take a long time. These negotiations uh, just got started. The U.S. just started negotiating with Ukraine. The British also started negotiating uh, with Ukraine on this. But no, none of the other European countries have. So, I, you know, I don't think they're going to be signing any agreements anytime soon. But I think it's interesting that they're thinking of ways to handcuff future presidents, you know, from ending the war in Ukraine if it's still going on. I mean, that's what this means. You know, if they make it impossible for them to stop uh, supporting Ukraine, that means that the war is going to go on and on. Again, this doesn't make it impossible, but it would make it very difficult, it seems like, uh, under this plan. But again, we just don't know what things are going to be looking like in a few years anyway. It does sound like, um, you know, the Biden administration doesn't have much confidence (laughs) going into the the election season here. Um, All right. So the next story here, the U.S. announces a $250 million arms package for Ukraine. The Biden administration on Tuesday announced a new $250 million arms package for Ukraine that includes HIMARS ammunition, AIM-9 air-to-air missiles, artillery rounds, and various types of other military equipment. So this $250 million package is being paid for using funds made available by an accounting error, or you know what the Pentagon is calling an accounting error, that freed up a whole bunch of money. They claim that they were overvaluing weapons that they sent to Ukraine and that freed up an additional $6.2 billion to spend on fueling the proxy war against Russia. So right now they don't have to worry too much about this new aid that Biden requested Congress to authorize because they have the $6 billion to play with. And, you know, I suspect that if they start running out of that, they might, you know, realize that they overvalued some more weapons. It just seems pretty ridiculous to me. Um, but, uh, so this is, the, I believe the second time that they've dipped into this money. The first time was when they announced an arms package on August 14th. And the one that was announced on Tuesday, it uses the presidential drawdown authority, which allows the U S to arm Ukraine with weapons directly from Pentagon stockpiles. According to the Pentagon, this package includes the aim nine missiles for air defense, additional ammunition for high Mars, 155 millimeter and 105 millimeter artillery rounds, mine clearing equipment, tow missiles, javelin and other anti-armor systems and rockets, 
Hydra 70 rockets, over 3 million rounds of small arms ammunition, armored medical treatment vehicles, demolitions munitions for obstacle clearing, spare parts, maintenance, and other field equipment. So the Pentagon also released a fact sheet that said the U.S. has pledged over $43 billion in military equipment to Ukraine since Russia invaded on February 24th, 2022. And where we stand now so far since this thing started, Congress has authorized $113 billion to spend on this war. That doesn't just include direct military aid to Ukraine. That also includes money for the Pentagon to replenish stockpiles, money for the Pentagon to pay for troop deployments in Eastern Europe. They're getting a lot of uh, money out of this. There's also the economic aid for Ukraine that they call budgetary aid and uh, some humanitarian assistance and uh, you know a few other more minor things that they're spending on. And the White House recently asked Congress to authorize another $24 billion in spending on the war. All right, so the next one here, drones target a Russian city near the Estonia border. So this is a bit concerning here. Russian authorities said early Wednesday morning that drones targeted an airport in Peskov, which is a Russian city about 20 miles from NATO member Estonia's border, and it's over 400 miles from Ukraine. Um, So if you're watching here, I just stuck in a, a screenshot of Google Maps showing where this city is in relation to Estonia. It's also pretty close to Latvia, and it's very far from the Ukrainian border, as you can see, uh, over 400 miles. And, you know, this is pretty deep into Russian territory from Ukraine. Uh, you know, this is the first I've heard of them striking this area. And then the question is, where were these drones launched from? Um, you know, it's not really clear. The Russians as of this recording, haven't made any sort of accusations. Um, But the governor of the Peskov Oblast wrote on Telegram that the Russian Defense Ministry was repelling a drone attack on the Peskov airport. He also said that there were no casualties in the attack based on preliminary information. So according to Russia's TASS news agency, emergency services said that four IL-76 transport planes were damaged in the attack. They said a fire broke out and two planes burst into flames. Um, So according to RT, there was other drone attacks across Russia, including in the Bryansk Oblast, which borders Ukraine, and then one in the Oryol Oblast, which is east of Bryansk. So over the past month, Ukrainian drone attacks inside Russia have significantly escalated, as I've been covering. And on Sunday, the Washington Post reported that U.S. officials expect these operations to increase even more. And the U.S. claims that it does not enable or encourage Ukrainian attacks inside Russia. The Economist reported Sunday that Ukrainian drone attacks use intelligence gathered by Kiev's Western backers. And, you know, these Baltic states, you know, even though they have very small militaries, they're all NATO members and they have been very belligerent. Uh, Lithuania, if you remember earlier in the war, basically tried to put Kaliningrad under embargo, which is this small, uh, it's a piece of Russian territory in between Lithuania and Poland. It's, it's a, you know, it, it is Russia. It's kind of like Alaska is to the United States. It's just separated from Russia and it's on the Baltic Sea. And Lithuania, I believe their military is like 20,000 strong. They never would have done something like that if they weren't a NATO member. And it was actually Germany and the U.S. that told them, convinced them not to, you know, 
stop goods from going to Kaliningrad. They were banning certain goods, and, and rail transport was what they were trying to ban altogether, but they ended up lifting the restrictions. Um, so definitely going to keep you know you updated on this story to see what you know if the Russians make any kind of accusations like these drones were launched from NATO territory because that could be a huge escalation. All right, the next one here, the Philippines and Australia to conduct joint patrols in the South China Sea. So the Philippines and Australia plan to conduct joint maritime patrols in the South China Sea, which has become a potential flashpoint for a conflict between the U.S. and China. So General Romeo Brauner Jr., he's the commander of the Armed Forces of the Philippines. He said on Sunday that the plans have been approved by President Ferdinand Marcos Jr., and the Australian government. Um, so they're, it's, they're signed off on it. He says it, it's still in the planning phase, but you know it looks like this is going to happen. And joint patrols could put Australian vessels into dangerous situations with the Chinese Coast Guard, as Manila and Beijing often have tense standoffs near disputed reefs. And this is something I've been covering quite a bit lately, so I don't want to be too redundant, but you know, it's concerning to see, you know, U.S., more U.S. allies getting involved in the South China Sea. And the U.S., of course, is getting much more involved in the South China Sea. And, you know, China's not going to back down on its claims because Australia is getting into the mix. I mean, if anything, it's going to make them more angry about the situation. Um, so, you know, we just never know what this uh, this could turn into in the South China Sea. And I think it's an area, you know, most people, rightfully so, think Taiwan is the big you know, danger, the big flashpoint, but the South China Sea, you know, there's a lot of military hardware flying around there, sailing around there. You never really know what could happen. And if an accident happens right now with the state of U.S.-China relations, things can be really bad. It's happened before a U.S. and Chinese spy plane, a U.S. spy plane crashed into a Chinese fighter jet near Hainan Island in 2001. And back then, U.S.-China relations were much at a much better state than they are today. Um, all right, so the next one here, ECOWAS sanctions prevent food and aid deliveries to Niger. So on Tuesday, UN officials said sanctions on Niger imposed by the Economic Community of West African States, ECOWAS, were blocking aid deliveries and shipments of food into the country. This is a, an official from the UN Refugee Agency uh, who's a representative for Niger. He said, quote, there is no way to bring humanitarian aid into the country. The immediate goods affected is going to be food, and then it's going to be access to medicine, to drugs, end quote. So ECOWAS imposed the harsh sanctions in the wake of the July 26 coup that ousted President Mohamed Bazoum and replaced him with a military junta led by General Abdulrahman Chiani. The blockade is meant to pressure Chiani and other coup leaders to reinstate Bazoum, but there's no sign that they're going to back down. And that's what this is. This is a blockade. These are very harsh sanctions that they've put in place. And according to Reuters, since the sanctions were imposed, trucks carrying food and humanitarian aid have been piling up at Niger's borders, driving up food prices in the country. UN aid flights have also been grounded because sanctions are preventing jet fuel from getting into the country. Uh, So this UN official said that UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres had made a request for sanctions exemptions to ECOWAS. They're asking them to allow certain things in, but this request has not been granted. So they have Niger under a blockade. And in a situation like this, you know, 
we know who is getting hurt the most. It's the ordinary uh, Nigerians. It's not the military leaders. Um, and, you know, from what I understand, it seems like the coup is is pretty popular. They've had a lot of volunteers sign up to fight in, if ECOWAS intervenes or volunteer in different ways. Um, and the U.S. and France have backed the ECOWAS threats and pressure against Niger. I don't see them saying any speaking out against this blockade doesn't seem to bother them. And France has been more hawkish than the U.S. on this issue. As I covered yesterday, Macron, the French president, has explicitly stated that France would back military intervention. And France was also reportedly angry at the U.S. for speaking with the junta because they were mad that Victoria Nuland uh, went over there and spoke with them. Um, So, you know, still a situation that we need to keep a close eye on because it's, uh, you know, it's getting pretty dangerous. All right, I want to take this moment to mention our sponsor, and that is the Expat Money Summit. So you go to expatmoneysummit.com, and you can register for this event, which will be online from October 2nd to October 6th. You just have to put in your email. You could get to go to expatmoneysummit.com, or you can follow the link in the YouTube description or the show notes if you're listening to the audio version. And this is an event hosted by Mikkel Thorup, who's the head of Expat Money, and he has a very unique uh, field of expertise, and that's on you know people that want to leave the country that they live in. And you know it's a very interesting site, expatmoney.com. Just in general, um, they have all sorts of you know articles about what's it what's it like to live in different countries. I saw them post something about Costa Rica the other day. And it's something I think a lot of people might not think they're capable of, but, you know, you could learn more about it. And especially if you work online, um, you know, there might be a lot more opportunities and it might be more realistic than you think. And there's good ways to protect your money so you don't have to, you know, to pay as little tax as possible. That's another thing that they specialize in and that you're going to learn at this summit who has great speakers, including Peter Schiff, Mark Faber, Dr. Ron Paul, Doug Casey, Jim Rogers and Tom Woods and many, many more. So go to expatmoneysummit.com to register. Uh, definitely check this out. I think it's going to be a really cool event, and I'm happy to have them sponsoring this show. And Mikel is a listener, so he's a supporter of antiwar.com. It's very good. All right, so the next one here, Congressman Visit Al-Qaeda-Controlled Syria. So this article is from Kyle Anzalone at the Libertarian Institute. Three members of Congress traveled to a region of Syria controlled by Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, HTS, which is an offshoot of al-Qaeda. The congressional delegation met with several Syrians who were suffering and blamed President Bashar al-Assad for poor living conditions. And this is northwest Syria in the Idlib province. That's the area that HTS controls. And this is Republican Congressman Ben Klein, Scott Fitzgerald, and French Hill. They spent about 30 minutes inside rebel-held Syrian territory on Sunday morning, according to the Washington Post. The State Department limited the travel of the representatives over security concerns. The short visit to Syria included stops at the Bab al-Salama border post and a hospital in the Aleppo district. So I, I like what Kyle did here because... He uh, included what the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the DNI, he included their description of HTS. So this is a group that uh, isn't, is, you know, I would say tacitly backed by the U.S. The U.S., you know, wants them to control this area of Idlib so it doesn't come under Assad's control. 
Turkey backs other groups that control other areas of Idlib, and they've also cooperated with, with HTS. And they are al-Qaeda. Uh, so the DNI says that HTS evolved from Jabhat al-Nusra, or Nusra Front, which was al-Qaeda's branch in Syria. They were al-Qaeda in Syria, and they've tried to kind of whitewash HTS. Uh, I mean, their leader had an interview on PBS saying, no, we're not al-Qaeda anymore. You know, we're not, you know, and the media has kind of, you know, the Western media has helped them in this whitewashing campaign. Um, And, you know, despite that, Congressman Hill voiced support for HTS's desire to overthrow Assad. Um, That's kind of what their line is. It's still saying, you know, Assad must go all these years later after it's clear he's not going anywhere. And, Kyle also mentions how the U.S. policy trying to overthrow Assad, you know, led to the rise of these jihadist groups in Syria. And of course, the U.S. invasion of Iraq, just the general destabilization of the region led to the rise of ISIS and all that. And how U.S. sanctions on Syria are hurting ordinary Syrians. They're specifically designed to prevent the country's reconstruction. So, you know, there's no question that they really harm civilians. Um, but they just, you know, want to blame everything on Assad, of course. Um, you know, and these are the people that the U.S. gets in bed with in Syria. All right. So the next one here is another one from Kyle. Kim Jong-un says Washington's frantic actions risk nuclear war. So the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, slammed the U.S., Japan, and South Korea for conducting war games in the waters around the Korean Peninsula. During a speech celebrating the formation of Pyongyang's navy, Kim said Washington's actions had become more frantic and could cause a nuclear war. The U.S., uh, he said, quote, the U.S. imperialists are getting more frantic than ever because in the joint naval-military exercises, with their vassal forces in the waters around North Korea, while putting the deployment of reinforced nuclear strategic assets in the waters around the Korean Peninsula on a permanent basis. And quote, if you remember, very recently, President Biden sent a nuclear armed submarine to the Korean Peninsula, first time since 1981 that that happened. You know, just a reckless provocation for the sake of provocation. And Kim was taking aim at uh, Biden's recent meeting with uh, South Korean President Yoon suk Yeol and Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida at Camp David, and they, you know, agreed to increase trilateral military cooperation. Referring to that, Kim said, "Quote: The gang bosses of the U.S., Japan, and the Republic of Korea were closeted with each other, where they announced that they would conduct on a regular basis the tripartite joint military exercises." under different code names and said about its implementation, end quote. And he added that the increased military activity in the region risks provoking a nuclear war. He said, quote, owing to the reckless confrontational moves of the U.S. and other hostile forces, the waters off, off the Korean Peninsula have been reduced into the world's biggest war hardware concentration spot, the most unstable waters with the danger of nuclear war, end quote. So tensions still very high on the Korean Peninsula. Another area I think is kind of a lot of people are not noticing how, you know, bad things are getting over there. Uh, That is it for the news for today. Uh, You could go check out our viewpoints. We have one from Ted Snyder. Was Putin really serious about the Minsk Accords? 
One from Doug Bandow, no final draft. That's over at the American Conservative. One from Joseph Solis Mullen, Hong Kong was always doomed to be under Beijing's thumb. That's at the Libertarian Institute. One from Stephen Bryan, Ukraine to cost half trillion even if the war ends. That's over at Asia Times. And our spotlight is from Kelly Vlahos at Responsible Statecraft. U.S. military vows hellscape of drone swarming in future China war. Uh, It's about, I went over that story yesterday that Kyle wrote up about the U.S. wants to launch thousands of drones at once. I mean, really uh, just a horrific thought in a future war. Um, That's everything uh, here today. It was a bit of a slow day today, which is usually, you know, good for the world if I have a boring, slow work day. Um, But anyway, I just want to give everybody a heads up that next week I'm going to be taking two days off. There's not going to be a Thursday and Friday show. We had to schedule a C-section for the baby, so that's happening next week on September 6th, but we'll have a Monday through Wednesday show, and then I should be back You know, that following Sunday to record to have a show Monday, and then I'll be back on the normal schedule. So uh, wish me luck with that. Uh, again, please help us with our fundraiser. Um, antiwar.com slash donate. If you can't do that, just, you know, comment, like, subscribe, share the show around, share antiwar.com, tell your friends. I'll be back tomorrow with some more news. Thanks for listening.